Good morning, Life Church. It is a privilege and a joy to be able to be with you and continue our series in the Apostles' Creed this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Mark, and my wife Catherine and I are fellow members with you here at Life Church, and it certainly is a privilege and a joy to uh, be here um, with you today. And so, as we are continuing this series, uh, we're speaking to the line as we've already been talking about and leading up to this, the forgiveness of sins. Now, it's interesting because up to this point, uh, we can observe that the creed has not said anything about the people who confess it. Now, we began to make that turn last week as Pastor James taught us about the church and how God has not only given us himself, but he has also given us his body as a communion of saints or believers to worship, love, to serve, and care for one another as we fulfill the mission that God has given to us. This week, we're going to see a phrase with the forgiveness of sins that focuses specifically upon who we are as humans. And what does it say about us? It says we're sinners. That's not very good news. Yet, what we will see this week is that in spite of our sinful rebellion and our continuous idolatry towards God and his word and his will for our lives, he has chosen to rescue us by forgiving us of our sins, which is indeed very good news. I just want to provide the reminder, though, as we have often throughout this series, that what we are talking about today, what I'm teaching, what we are confessing as a body of believers is not something new, but rather this is what Christians have always believed. These were truths that Christ delivered to the apostles and the apostles passed that along to the next generation that was continually passed down to us today. And so in that, it is a tradition. And I use the word tradition intentionally, but, you know, that word to a 21st century Christian can be a bit of a bad word. It can carry negative connotations with it. However, I would argue that tradition is actually a good thing when it's focused upon the right things. As a writer whose name was Yaroslav Pelikan, he said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. So what we often mean by tradition really should be labeled as traditionalism, which would be more along the lines of empty rituals or behaviors that are only done in a mechanical way. But a true tradition is something that is valuable. It's something that carries weight. It's something that's so rich and so true that it must be preserved and passed on to those who will follow. And so that's the tradition that we are standing in today and seeking to pass on to the next generation that comes behind us. So as we approach this particular line in the creed, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 1 through chapter 2, uh, verse 2. And so 
I will read that passage of scripture for us, and then we will pause for a, a brief prayer together. So let's read here, beginning in chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray together. Father, I do realize the worst thing I could do today would be to stand here and teach through my own efforts or strength, Lord. So I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit as I aim to teach your word faithfully. May I be dependent upon his work in my life and through me this morning. May you open up our hearts to receive the message that you have for us through the words you have given to us. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was almost 5,000, I'm sorry, it was almost 500 years ago uh, that John Calvin uh, wrote the groundbreaking seminal work known as the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Some of you may have heard of this book or read portions of it, um, but what John Calvin writes in the opening line of this book really conveys so clearly what we need to see today in this line of the Apostles' Creed, the forgiveness of sins. I'll paraphrase, but Calvin writes that in order to truly understand your life and the world that exists around you, you must possess knowledge of two things, knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself. Essentially, if we can understand who God is and then who we are in relation to who God is, that virtually encompasses everything in this life as well as in the life that is to come. And that's going to relate to where we are going today because this line in the Apostles' Creed makes a very clear and intentional statement about who we are as humans. But additionally, it makes a very clear and important statement about who God is as well. And if we fail to believe the truths of who we are and also who God is, then the consequences of that unbelief will be absolutely catastrophic. However, 
If we choose to believe these truths and confess these truths from a believing heart, then the consequences will be astoundingly remarkable beyond what we could have even imagined. So where we're going to look at is, is, is right here, focusing on just this one sentence, and we're going to work that out. And that is, because Jesus has died for our sins, we are able to receive forgiveness from our sins. Because Jesus has died for our sins, we are able to receive forgiveness from our sins. So we're going to look back at 1 John here in sequence, and I want to highlight these three particular emphases that we have focused upon throughout our series in the Apostles' Creed. And that is that true belief informs the intellect, true belief commands the will, and true belief transforms the affections. So first, we're going to take a look at how true belief informs the intellect, and we'll see that within verses 5 through 7. But here's something for us to think about in just a summarized statement. When we receive the forgiveness of our sins, our sin is canceled and we are cleansed. That's what we want to see first. As we begin in verse 5, John is affirming that the message he's about to present to them and subsequently to us is a message that is credible. He says this message is credible because it was given to himself along with the other apostles by Jesus. Verse 5 actually links back to what was seen in verses 1 through 4, where John is building this case to the credibility of his message. And he says that we have heard this message of Christ with our own ears. We have heard him speak this message with his lips. They have seen Christ with their own eyes, and they have even touched him with their own hands. And so these are proofs that, in essence, verify John's message. And so he says, this is a credible message, and this is a message that I am passing along to you in a way that is accurate and absolutely crucial. And so in that, it's interesting because that is exactly what the function and the purpose of the Apostles' Creed was. And we see John doing that as well as he conveys this message of Scripture to God's people. So this is what he says in verse 5. His message is that God is light. God is light and there is no darkness that exists within him. Now comparing God to light is an image that John uses quite frequently not only do we see this imagery here in 1 John, but he also uses it over in the Gospel of John. And in 1 John here, he doesn't really give an explanation of uh, what he means when God is light, but we really get clued into that more so when we look over into John's Gospel. I want to just take us to a passage there that's going to help us see what exactly he's saying and how that relates to the forgiveness of sins so in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21, I'm going to read that for us. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it, it, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So as in this passage, as well as the passage in 1 John, we see this contrast between light and darkness. And in, in both places, it appears that John is contrasting the difference between God's holiness and our sinfulness, right? So we see the light of God's holiness and then the darkness of our sinfulness. In John 3, he says that we as men love darkness over the light. That's our natural disposition, our place that our heart is in. And that is expressed through our evil and wicked deeds, in, in 1 John here, too, we see that we as the people of God, though, we are instructed to walk in a different way. We are to walk in the light as opposed to walk in the darkness. And this idea of walking, can make, it really conveys how you live your life, how you live your life. And this is actually a demonstration of the moral focus that John brings to describe who God is, and then who we are in comparison to who he is. As God is light, he shines into the world in order to reveal himself to us. I like what John Stott says about this. He writes, it is his nature to reveal himself, as it is the property of light to shine, and the revelation is of perfect purity and unutterable majesty. So God, by his nature, is light. This means God is holy. He is pure. He is majestic. God is without any kind of moral sin or blemish, but he shines in absolute radiant purity. But when that happens, when he shines out, that also illuminates things, right? When a light shines, it illuminates whatever is around it. In this case, it illuminates us, and it exposes us for who we truly are. So this ethical understanding of God's nature is further clarified. We see that in verses 6 and 7, as we see that we, as men and women, we're either walking on two paths. We're either walking in the light, or we're walking in the darkness. And once again, that is to convey the pattern in which you are living your life. Now, going back to verse 5 for just a moment, as we see that God is light, John says that there is no darkness in him at all. And the, the phrasing there is particularly important, and it doesn't come out really in English, because in the original language, it was a double negative and our English teachers will say, you're not supposed to do that, right? In, the, in English class, that's not good grammar. But in this language at this time, this was a good thing. It was communicated to show a particular force behind something. So there's a double negative. Essentially, it would be like us saying, there is absolutely no darkness that exists within God. And so he's doing that to just convey the absolute holiness and purity of who God is when he says that he is light. And so as John sets the stage through this opening verse, we now see that he takes these statements and he 
makes a contrast. He develops this idea of walking in the darkness versus walking in the light. And he does that by a series of if-then type of statements, which means that if the first part of this sentence is true, then the second will by default be true as well. So beginning in verse 6, John says, if we claim to have fellowship with God, but the, but the way that we live indicates we are living in the darkness instead of the light, then we are liars. We are liars and we are not living out what we claim to believe. So with striking clarity here, John says that as God's people, our lives should be characterized by moral consistency. And if though, if we say something and that is not then uh, in alignment or if that's contradicting how we live, then that shows us there's a deeper issue at play. Namely, there is an issue with the heart. So let's Notice how he frames this at the end of verse 6 when he says, those who live in darkness do not practice the truth. Now, isn't that interesting how he speaks about knowing truth? We tend to think of truth as something that is merely a propositional idea or a concept that exists only within our minds. Yet John says that knowing the truth is far more expansive than this. Knowing truth not only gets to your head, but it reaches into what's your heart, and then it ultimately reflects how you respond and how you live. So it's important for us to know this, particularly because a number of us, including my, myself, come from church traditions uh, or backgrounds that were very focused upon rules, regulations, or following certain man-made moral codes. That would be more of traditionalism, as we talked about at the beginning. But to this, I would say that in more recent years, much of that has been corrected, kind of this legalistic form uh, of the church and what it looks like to worship and live the Christian Life, And I would say, rightfully so. That, that, that's a good thing. However, I do fear that today we are prone to taking that to the opposite extreme, where it's almost like we say, you can be a Christian and it really doesn't matter how you live. Or it's like, almost like we have to feel like we are ashamed or we're apologizing for trying to embody holiness. And I would say that's a grave error and one that is just as harmful and detrimental as the first. In this, it is so crucial for us to hold tightly to the gospel of grace while we simultaneously know that true grace always transforms our behavior, always. And in this, God is changing us by his power. That's what it means to be a true recipient of God's grace. And as we do that, we will be obedient, and that is ultimately what pleases God. And any other understanding of this idea is simply out of line with the Scriptures. I'll paraphrase John Stott by saying that Christianity without morality is an illusion. It's an illusion. 
So in this, might we seek to magnify Christ and his grace, but as we do, must, we must remember that the same grace that has saved us from who we were is also changing us into who he desires for us to be. Now, verse 7 hinges off from verse 6, as John shows us that what we have when we, basically, these are the uh, indicators of what we do have when we choose to walk in the light instead of the darkness. As God is light, we as his people are called to follow him by also walking in the light. So his assertion is that if we are walking in the light through our obedience to God, there's going to be two realities that will specifically be present for us. The first is that we will experience fellowship with other believers. Now, this is quite interesting because in light of the the comparison John just made in verse 6, we might have expected for him to say fellowship with God instead of fellowship with one another, as he wrote in verse 6. But with this, it appears John is teaching us something very crucial about the Christian life. We see that our fellowship with God is closely connected to and even integrated with our fellowship with one another. Now, I know this can be difficult for us to grasp because we live in a very individualistic society. So I think it's really crucial for us to to think about this. We talk a lot about a personal relationship with Jesus, which is important and, and absolutely true. However, by saying this, I think it can really make us prone to think that the Christian life is really only about me and Jesus, just, just about our relationship. It's like, I've got my relationship with Jesus, you have your relationship with Jesus, and the paths really don't ever need to cross one another. But the New Testament knows nothing of this kind of individualized, isolated relationship with God. Rather, what we see continually is the life of a follower of Christ is deeply integrated within the context of a community of other followers of Christ through the church. So, therefore, our fellowship with God always impacts our fellowship with other believers. Conversely, our fellowship with other believers always impacts our fellowship with God. The two cannot exist exclusively. And I do appreciate what the Australian scholar Colin Cruz writes about this when he says, there is no real fellowship with God that is not expressed in fellowship with other believers. This means that our sin before God will undoubtedly interrupt our relationship with God's people. Not only this, but the sins that we commit against other believers will certainly interrupt our fellowship that we experience with God. Yet, positively, when we walk in the light, when we practice heartfelt obedience to the Lord, this is going to produce a beautiful harmony of fellowship between us and God and between us and other believers. When we choose to love, serve, and care for one another, our fellowship with God is only going to increase in its richness and its vitality 
And so will that be the case with other believers around us as we express it. So that's the first reality we see. And second, we see that when we walk in the light, we will also experience the cleansing of our sin through the blood of Christ. Now, as John speaks about Christ's blood, he's taking his readers and us back to the cross. We know that John witnessed Jesus' crucifixion with his own eyes. We see that in John 19. He, he writes about that account. And he is emphasizing here that the only way we can experience cleansing from our sin is through the substitutionary death of our Savior. Jesus' death on the cross was gruesome, it was agonizing, it was excruciating. But it is his death that brings life for you and I. And the only way that we can have life in him is through the cleansing of our sin. And this goes hand in hand with forgiveness. With God's forgiveness through Christ, our sin is canceled. Our sin has made us guilty before God. Sin is an incalculable weight that we carry, and apart from Christ, we will each be absolutely crushed under its burden. Yet, Jesus has taken the weight of our sin. He has put that upon himself. He's borne our punishment in our place for our sins, and as a result, he cancels the debt that we owe. And as Jesus does this. He not only cancels our debt, but he cleanses us from any stains or blemishes that come with it. Just think about it like this. We can be forgiven for what we've done wrong, but that doesn't necessarily erase the record of what we've done. And in this case, Jesus erases that by cleansing us. I was thinking about a few years ago, I had gotten a ticket for speeding and so I went to court, and the judge said, well, you have a pretty good driving record, and since you've not gotten a speeding ticket before, we are going to allow you to have this waived. You just have to go to this eight-hour class, like a defensive driving kind of school for the day. And they said, as long as you take that class, then we're going to uh, just you know, forgive you, cancel your, your debt, so to speak. But he said to me before he, he ended, he said, now, this is not going to be able to happen again for you, okay? You only get to do this one time. And I think about that. It's like while my debt was forgiven, there was still that blemish. There was still that stain. There was something in his mind there. Or if it happened again, it would be brought right back up. But here, we need to understand that Jesus handles what we've done quite differently. As Christ forgives us, he chooses to cleanse us. And in that, he no longer holds anything that we've done against us. That record is completely removed from our name. So in him, our debt is canceled. We are cleansed. And we've got to believe this. We've got to believe this. We've got to confess this and know that in Christ, we have the forgiveness of sin. So not only does true belief Inform the intellect, true belief also commands the will. So when we receive the forgiveness of our sins, 
we are positioned for obedience. We're going to see that here in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1. So as John continues his progression, he starts very similarly in verse 8 that he does in verse 6 when he says that if we do not have sin, then, or if we, we, if we claim we don't have sin, rather, what we are doing is we are deceiving ourselves. And once again, we are lying. And he says the truth is not in us. Now, in John's particular context, it appears there were false teachers that were claiming they had attained this degree of sinless perfection. So essentially, they were no longer committing any sins in their lives. Now, it's doubtful that any of us are thinking in that particular way this morning. But while we wouldn't say that exactly, we do tend to say something like this in other ways by failing to respond appropriately to our sin. So I want to provide us with three ways that you shouldn't respond to your sin, three that seem to be some of the most common. The first is you should not deflect it. That's the first way you shouldn't respond to your sin. And by that, I mean when the blame rightfully comes to you, you bounce it off yourself and you put it on someone or something else. Now, this tactic is as old as Genesis 3. After the Lord comes to Adam and Eve, after they've eaten the fruit from the tree they were not supposed to eat from, Adam begins to give an excuse to God. And he says that it was Eve's fault because that's what she had given him to eat. And so not only that, we can blame it on something, something other than a person. We might say, well, I'm just a victim of my circumstances and justify our behavior in that way. But to that, I want us to realize that we can never pin the blame on our circumstances in order to excuse our wrongdoing. Now, there are things that happen to, to you, to me, that are out of our control. Um, I don't want to deny that those things can be very, very difficult, and they're the result of sin. But when we respond in a sinful way, that never makes it okay. So it's easy, though, to become settled in a place of denial, Because we would rather not venture into what it means for us to be held responsible for what we've done. But when we choose this, John says we are deceiving ourselves and we are simply living underneath a facade that is not true. So we shouldn't deflect it. We also don't want to minimize it. When we deflect our sin... At other times, we can just downplay it. We really convince ourselves that it's not that bad. We, we don't feel the, the weight and the gravity of what we've done. We convince ourselves that essentially it's not a big deal. Everyone else is doing it. Or we say, people are doing far worse than what I've done or what I'm doing. Therefore, I'm okay. But as we tell ourselves these things, we once again deceive ourselves as we try to justify our behavior with lies. And thirdly, it's just saying you're sorry about it. In this case, you know the right words to say, but the actions 
and the heart are not aligning with what has been said with words. We often convince ourselves that we confess our sin to God or to other people, but you know, we may even think that we are sorry in those moments, but then we quickly return to what we've claimed to have turned away from. This response, like others, indicates that the heart really has not changed. Instead, we are seeking to continue in our sin, and we are just looking for a more palatable way to cope with the guilt and the shame that we are actually experiencing. And so none of these three responses should characterize God's people. And and if we're really honest with ourselves, I don't think this is what we want to do. Because if we're really squaring with reality, this is an absolutely exhausting cycle. As it slowly but surely keeps coming back, you may be able to push it off for a while, but you just, it's like a boomerang. You know, it just keeps coming back to haunt you, the weight of your guilt and your shame. And that just absolutely brutalizes your soul. But I do want us to Remember that there is uh, a gift in the conviction that we experience, right? So it, it is a gift of the Lord's grace that he is pointing out our wrongdoing to us. And so then we can make that step towards change. That really is the point. If we just were never convicted and just went on and on in our sin, that would be absolutely destructive to our lives and to the lives of others around us. But thank God that he has intervened and he does convict us of what we've done. But the longer we suppress it, the more we do that, the less and less conviction we will feel in time as well because we are knowing the truth yet choosing to reject it. But the posture of true confession is, is where we need to be. So don't deflect it. Don't minimize it. Don't just pay lip service to it. But take the right response. What is the right response? To confess your sins to God. And when we do confess our sins, we will see what his response is to us. We see this in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So to confess your sins means to admit that you were wrong. Admitting wrong thoughts, wrong motives, wrong actions, wrong inactions. In essence, when we confess our sins, we are agreeing with God that we have committed this wrong against him. And we are owning the fact that we have come up short. But true confession is not only in what we say. It's in how we seek to change. As we've seen, paying lip service to our wrongs is not enough. With confession comes repentance, which is to turn away from how we've turned away from God. Therefore, we turn away from our sin and we turn towards God in our confession. And once we confess our sins to God by turning back to him, we see how God responds to us. Okay, we have two specific ways that he does that. First, when we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. 
by John saying that God is faithful, this means that God always follows through in what he's going to do. This is something that we can be sure of. As humans, we are unfortunately not faithful many times, but as we see in 2 Timothy 2, 13, it says that God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. So as we confess our sins, we can rest in confidence that God will carry through on his promise to pardon us. That's something that we can be absolutely certain of. And secondly, we see that God is just. God is just in this. Now, <clears throat> it's important to understand, and something we've been talking about here in this series, we talked about it some in the Joshua series, in how that God is completely loving and simultaneously God is completely just. Now, in this, with his justice, God will not allow any sin that has ever been committed to go unpunished. So what does that mean for us? It means that if we were left to ourselves, we would pay the penalty for every last sin that we've ever committed for all of eternity in judgment. That's what that means. But God has made a way for us through his son. He has placed upon him the punishment that you and I deserve. He chose to place judgment upon Christ so that we could be forgiven and be cleansed from our sin. And that should move us. That should move us to worship. But true worship also translates into obedience. This should translate into we as people who practice the truth by walking in the light. And may we not be those that we have seen in verses 6, 8, and now in 10 by saying that we have not sinned. Might we not live in this kind of deception by telling this lie to ourselves and to others around us? Might we see the truth for what it is, even though it's difficult, and admit our sins and then forsake our sins by confessing our sins to God? Now, lastly, we see that true belief transforms the affections. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 are going to show us that when we receive the forgiveness of our sins, the God who was once our judge has become our father. This is absolutely crucial to this whole piece. We cannot receive forgiveness of our sins without this. A new chapter is beginning, but John's continuing on the same subject. We can see this affection that John has for these people that he's writing to. He begins the verse by saying, my little children. It's uh, unmistakably pastoral in how he's saying this. And they were his children in the faith. And Therefore, he was concerned for their souls. And he gives the purpose for writing what he is writing. He says that he is giving them this message so they will not sin. Now, by this, John is not calling for sinless perfection, but rather he is saying that sin should not characterize the life of one who follows Christ. Living in habitual sin is never an acceptable pattern for any of God's people. However, there will be times in which we all sin. So John says, though, when you do sin, take heart, because we have an advocate with God the Father through the Son, whose name is Jesus Christ, and he is the one who is righteous. A definition of advocate would be one who appears in another's behalf. Mediator, intercessor, helper, 
In this, Christ has interceded for us at the cross, and Christ continues to intercede for us to this very day. John Calvin says, Christ's intercession is the continual application of his death to our salvation. But in this, we must understand and resist this false perception that can be presented as the Father being the one of complete justice and then the Son being the one of complete love. And it's like the Father wants to bring down justice, but the Son's trying to talk him out of it. I think that idea can be communicated a bit unintentionally, but that is simply not the case. God the Father and God the Son are both filled with complete love and complete justice. And we see here in this that it was actually God the Father who willingly sent the Son to the cross. It was the Father who took the initiative and Jesus who willingly submitted to the Father's plan. In this, God's mission of redemption was a cooperative effort. It was a cooperative effort among the Father and the Son that shows their mutual love for the world. Now, lastly, in verse 2, we see that John really zeroes in upon how God has forgiven our sins through Christ. He uses this word propitiation. And now that word is packed with theological significance, but the essential meaning of that word is satisfaction. Satisfaction, as God is simultaneously filled with love towards humanity and justice towards the sins that we have committed, we see that Jesus has satisfied the penalty for God's just punishment. Therefore, all that is left for us who are in him is his forgiveness that is poured out through his grace. We don't have to fear the punishment that we do deserve and would have inevitably received. So because of this, the God who was once our judge has become our father. This means that we do not have to stand trembling in fear, but that we can humbly bow in a posture of adoration and worship, knowing that we are accepted before God. We do not have to fear whether or not we will be accepted by him, but we can possess absolute confidence that when we confess our sins, he has forgiven our sins because we know him and we belong to him. This should transform our affections. That should place us in a state of awe for the links that our God has gone in order to forgive us and to put us back into a right relationship with himself. So we consider how to apply the message of God's forgiveness to our hearts and our lives. There's a question that I do want to frame for you, a question I want you to ask yourself. When you think about forgiveness, what's the one sin you've committed that just lingers in your mind? What is it that you just can't seem to let go of? As you pinpoint that, I want to ask you, ask yourself this, why can't you let go of it? Why? Have you confessed it? If you have it, my hope and my prayer is that you'll be, be prompted to respond to God's loving kindness this morning and receive his forgiveness through your confession. But if you have, 
Well, it could be that God has forgiven you, but you haven't yet forgiven yourself. Now, some may say, I just can't forgive myself for what I've done in my past. Now, in some ways, that could appear to be pious or holy, but it really is a cloaked form of idolatry. By this, I mean that in Christ, God has done everything necessary. Christ has done everything necessary for God to forgive you. And if you're saying you can't forgive yourself, then you, in effect, are saying that God's forgiveness is not sufficient enough for you. And so you're seeing the need to conjure up your own form of self-atonement by holding on to what you've done. That's not what God intends for you. And that's not a posture that is submitted to the Lord, ready to confess and receive the forgiveness that he offers. So may that not be so among any of us here today, but instead may we approach God humbly and willingly so that we might embrace the forgiveness he has offered us and by his grace put our sin in the past. Now, furthermore, I don't want us to miss the corporate dimension of what John presents here with the forgiveness of our sins. We acknowledge that we're prone to an individualized version of Christianity, kind of a me and Jesus idea, but the New Testament really puts forward a different picture particularly as it relates to the forgiveness of our sins. John has already shown us how our sin impacts both our fellowship with God as well as others. And to complement this idea, James writes in his epistle, chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now based upon this instruction, there's an expectation not to only confess our sins to God, but to also confess our sins to each other. Now I don't think what is in mind here is that um, we all confess each and every one of our sins to the other 400 of us who are part of Life Church. However, I do think what James is saying and what John is ultimately indicating is that confessing our sins to each other should be a consistent rhythm for us as the people of God. And I would say a healthy way, I believe a wise way to approach that would be within a small and a trusted group of individuals within our community here at Life Church. This could take the form through a life group, through meeting for coffee with a closer friend, or between you and one of our church's elders. Now, the purpose of this, though, is not to inflict shame or condemnation upon others, but rather it's for God can administer his forgiveness to you in a tangible way through other people. James says that as we confess our sins to each other, we need to also pray for each other. And so th th these two go hand in hand. And through this, we see that this is a form of ministry to one another as God extends the healing power of his forgiveness to us. So how might God be prompting you to confess your sins and receive his forgiveness today? Let's go to the Lord in prayer now as we'll conclude the message and we'll, we'll, we'll sing once again together. But I want you to really be opening up your heart to what the Lord may be saying to you in that. How is God prompting you to confess your sins and receive God's forgiveness today? Let's go to the Lord and pray together. Uh, Father, we are grateful for the forgiveness that you have given to us and just the links that you have gone to by providing your son as 
the satisfaction for our sins. I pray today that you would speak to us with clarity regarding how we should confess our sins or how we should receive the forgiveness that you've already granted to us, Lord. And do ask that we would not deflect our sin, that we would not minimize it, or that we would pay lip service to it, but rather we would just clearly cut to confession and, and admit what we've done, but then also just accept the work that you've done in our place that we could have never done. So may we receive that forgiveness today that you have so graciously granted to us as a gift, Lord. May you lead us by your spirit. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.